We're now going to hear from our scripture reader this morning. And uh, Lisa is going to read for us both in Japanese and in English over the, uh, the passage that we're going to be looking at today. All right, yeah, like you said, I will read in uh, Japanese, Hebrews 10, 11, and 12, and then uh, 10, 18, 11 through 18 in English. Furui no keiaku no moto dewa, saishi tachi wa mainichi, saidan ni ike nie o sasage masuga, sore wa keshte tsumi tori nozoku kotoba ga dekimasen. Shikashi, kiristo wa, いつまでも有効なただ一つの生贄として私たちの罪のために、ご自分を神に捧げ、その後神の右の座について。And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, good morning. My name's uh, Matt. I am the rabbi of uh, restoration in uh, North Seattle, and I'm honored to uh, be here today with you. Uh, Pastor Aaron's on sabbatical, but he's also sitting right there, which makes me feel weird. Uh, but um, I said in the first service, and I'll say again, it's, sabbaticals are a really big deal. I took one in 2017 and have another in 2024. I'm very much looking forward to that. And uh, it's really um, healthy of your pastor to do, and it's really amazing for you as a church to support the health of your lead pastor. And uh, my, my only issue with Aaron, other than he being a Mariners fan, is that he insists on having a mustache instead of a full beard. And uh, I'm glad that Pastor Jason's on staff because his beard is uh, really amazing. Also, I don't know if you realize that Pastor John and I are dressed exactly alike this morning. <laughs> Except I'm wearing wingtip versions of the same shoes, like we're exactly. It's a little bit like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito twinning. <laughs> Gotta be old for that joke, I guess. Um, the, just so you don't confuse us at the end of the service, he's tall and skinny, and I'm better looking. <laughs> okay. So today we're gonna start a new series uh, for you as a church called Seeing Jesus. In the Old Testament, and old is a funny word um, because it's usually negative in our cultural context. Uh, that's my, oh, that's just my old car, right? Oh, that's just the old dress. Oh, you have the old iPhone? I'm sorry. Uh, old people don't know how to use their phones, right? There's, we use old, 
I just shot that in there. All, we use the term old in a negative sense. And um, I think when it comes to the Bible, the problem is all covenants are old, including the new one. It's 2,000 years old, which by anyone's standards is not new. It's old. Um, and there really aren't just two covenants. Uh, in fact, there's a guy named Melito of Sardis in 170 um, who's the first one, to, it seems, to coin the term Old Testament because he was trying to elevate the words of Jesus. Which, like, you know, in some translations, the word in the Gospels, Jesus, let, his words are in red. But then shouldn't all of God's word be in red every time God speaks? Like, there's these little separations that seem, the, the desire is to make something more meaningful, but what ends up happening culturally is the other things become devalued. And um, in Judaism, we don't call the Old Testament the Old Testament. It's called the Tanakh because there's three parts. It's an acronym, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Uh, there's actually a different order to the Old Testament. It ends with Second Chronicles, not with the prophet, uh, the great Italian prophet Malachi. <laughs> Just kidding. He's not Italian. Malachi. Uh, and... Uh, you know, Second Chronicles is the last book in the Jewish order, and the reason why it's the last book is because it summarizes the whole story of Israel, and then it goes into the genealogy of Jesus. And the the idea with covenants is one: God only has ever made covenants with the Jewish people; He doesn't make covenants with anyone else. And part of the covenant He made with us as a people was that we would tell the nations that your gods aren't real. That there's only one God, the God of the heavens and the earth, the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he made promises to us as a Jewish people. He didn't pick us from among people. He created us to tell everyone else. And in doing so, he makes covenants. And the reason why he makes multiple covenants with the Jewish people is because we're terrible at keeping them. But God never, with each new covenant, which every covenant was new when it was given. And each time it's given, it never subtracts from prior covenants. It only adds more specificity, or, um, but it never subtracts from what was already there. For, for God, keeping covenants is easy. For people, it's not. And so he... Every time we break the covenants, he just makes another one, which is everything that was in it before, and also try again. We say God is the God of second chances. The truth is God is the God of, I'll just keep giving you a chance until you get it before you die. (laughs) And it's okay, because you'll, you know, hopefully you'll get it. But even the word testament, Old Testament, right? Old Testament, New Testament. The word testament just means testimony or evidence, proof or demonstration. It's the telling of the story. And the issue, even with the title of the series, seeing Jesus in the Old Testament is the word in. It's not seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. It's Jesus is the Old Testament. Jesus is the word of God. He's the entire thing. He is the embodiment of everything God has ever said and everything God has ever done. He's the visible image of the invisible God. The Father has no image. The Spirit has no image outside of the image of Jesus. So when God shows up and people see an image, it's what we call a pre-incarnate Jesus. He shows up and we are made in his image 
We are designed the way we look and our strut bones and our organs and the way everything works because we're patterned after the image of a real thing. And he is the image that we are made in. And in the same sense, the scriptures, the whole scriptures, are the written version of the real thing represented in the person of Jesus. Uh, David Stern, who is one of my uh, theological heroes, uh, did a Messianic Jewish translation of the scriptures called the Complete Jewish Bible, and he left a page out that um, I'm going to rip out right now for you out of this Bible. I keep going. I know this is Sound City Bible Church, and you care about the Bible, so some people are like, wait, what are you going to do? And There's a page in your Bible that doesn't belong. And that page is, if you turn in your Bible to the end of uh, what you know as the Old Testament, the end of Malachi, you'll notice that in almost every translation, Malachi, there's a space at the end because they made an editorial decision that that's the end. And then they put this page that says New Testament, and then it's blank on the back, and then the Gospel of Matthew starts. The problem is the Holy Spirit didn't inspire this page. It's a, it's, a, it's a literal page of separation in one story. So now it goes from, Ma- I, well, I tore a little bit of a verse out. That's not my fault. <laughs> Ma- now the story goes from Malachi to Matthew because it's not two stories. It's not the start of a new story in the New Testament. It's a continuation of the same story. It's one story with many covenants that God makes with the Jewish people so that we live out our mandate to be a light to the nations and tell the Gentiles, which is a word for nation, that there's no other God but the God of Israel and that he keeps his promises to us as a people still. If God doesn't keep his promises to the Jewish people, then there are no promises that matter for you. God is a liar. If he breaks covenants, we break covenants all the time. But God just says, it's okay, I'll make another one. And I'm going to do my part like I always will. And you're going to be terrible at it. But it's part of the design so that the creator of the heavens and the earth who formed you in your mother's womb could call you back to himself. So the first message in this series is seeing Jesus in the Old Testament sacrifices, and I would say the same idea. It's not that we see Jesus in the Old Testament sacrifice, it's that Jesus is the Old Testament sacrifice. He is the system, the whole thing that the system is based on. He is the real thing in heaven. The Bible Project, in an article called Animal Sacrifice, really? Uh, said, it's got question marks, so you have to read it. Um, they say this is a typical version of how people understand Jesus and sacrifice in the Old Testament. And it's not right, but this is how most people understand it. Uh, God is holy and perfect. You are not. Therefore, God is angry at you, hates you even, so he has to kill you. But because he's merciful, he'll let you bring an animal to him and, you, and will have the animal killed instead of you. Thankfully, Jesus came to be the one who gets killed by God instead of me. And Jesus rescues us from God, so now we go to uh, forever to the happy place after we die, not the bad place. 
And that whole kind of structure and design has truth in it, but um, that's actually how paganism works. That's not how Judaism works. It's not how the Bible works. And it's not what the text says. The design of a sacrifice is not, um, is not to save us from God's wrath. The design for sacrifice is based on, in, on earth is based on a real system in heaven that has always existed and always will. Um, when God meets Moses and gives him the commandments and specifically about the design of the tabernacle, which is where the presence of God lives in the wilderness, in Exodus 25, verse 8, it says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. The writer of Hebrews in uh, chapter 8, verse 5, says, they, The priests offer service in a replica and foreshadower of the heavenlies. One that is just as Moses was instructed by God when he was about to complete the tabernacle. For he says, see that you make everything according to the design that was shown to you on the mountain. But now Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry insofar as he is the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. So what are the designs of the tabernacle and later the temple? What are they actually based on? The scriptures say they're a shadow of a real thing. That what happens on earth is a version of what's real in heaven. And God is very careful to say, I want you to carefully follow all of my instructions and set it up exactly the way I tell you. Because it's in the setup and the design that God would speak. So we say what's the real thing that the sacrificial system is based on. The Sunday school answer is Jesus But the sacrificial system doesn't need replacement as many people believe it does. The sacrificial system is a shadow of the real thing in heaven. And the real thing leaves heaven to come to earth to offer himself as a sacrifice. And this is where it is amazing and better and wonderful. Is Jesus is not replacing the sacrificial system. He's every part of the sacrificial system in one person. He's the sacrifice that's offered. He's the high priest that offers it. And he's the God who receives the sacrifice. He's all three parts of the system perfectly because the system is based on him. Pre-incarnate, before he comes to earth, the whole system was based on who he is and what he would do. Hebrews 9 verse 11 says, When Messiah appeared as the high priest of the good things that have now come, passing through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, he entered into the holy of holies once and for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of flesh how much more will the blood of Messiah who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God cleanse our consciousness from dead works to serve the living God see the design is this tabernacle was a tent that they would put up and for some reason in some translations they use dolphin which is weird because I don't know how they got dolphin in the desert that's a whole other thing. But the uh, more perfect tent is one that the tabernacle is based on in heaven. That has a literal altar and a literal throne and is set up as the tabernacle is set up by design 
And it's not, the writer of Hebrews says, not made with hands, is to say it's not even of this creation. It's what we have in the things in creation are based on the real thing in heaven. So God commanded us, the Jewish people, to build a replica on earth of the real thing in heaven, but the real tent in heaven is not made with hands that Yeshua enters. Why? Because his blood is better, his blood is real, and it's actually on an altar in heaven. It's when Jesus ascends into heaven, 40 days after his resurrection, is when I believe he brings the his blood to the altar in heaven. So when John sees in Revelation, he sees a vision of the throne room, and he says, and I saw an altar that had a lamb that was slain on it. That what happens on earth also has to happen in heaven, and what is on earth is patterned after what is real in heaven, because it's one story from the beginning to the end with many covenants, and order matters, and patterns matter to God. It's actually the slogan of Coca-Cola all the way back to the 1940s. It's the real thing. And it's that real thing campaign that was uh, uh, designed as the, the, the head of, uh, in the 1970s, the brand manager of Coca-Cola said this. The slogan is a response to research which shows that young people seek the real, the original, and the natural as an escape from phonies which is weird because nothing in Coke is natural, but it's good, it's good marketing. But it's real. What, what people desire is the real, the original. And the real thing, when, when people get so focused on what they think Jesus did away with, they miss the point of that everything in the Torah and the scriptures is based on him because he's the real thing in heaven. So it's not that he has to replace himself or give a better version of himself. He just shows up to do what everything pointed to in the first place. That the sacrificial system and its design is a shadow of the real thing. And the real thing came to earth and offered himself as a sacrifice, which means he's the sacrifice. But in offering it, he's also the high priest who offers a sacrifice. And he's the one who receives his blood for atonement for the sins of his people. He's the whole sacrificial system in one person who is also God, but is also a person, and does everything that was ever hoped would be done. You've seen in, in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, like in the CSB, uh, it says it this way, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. But even in the footnote of the CSB, right next to the word end, it says in parentheses at the bottom, or goal. And the word telos does not mean end in any other version. Whenever the word is used in other places in Greek, it always means the goal. He's not the end of the law. It says in the complete Jewish Bible in Messianic translation. Rather, David Stern translates it, Messiah is the goal at which the Torah aims. He's not the end. He's the goal. He's what everything was pointing to. It's that the sacrificial system is for and so many Christians don't understand the sacrificial system or even want to understand the sacrificial system because it's boring to read. <laughs> but also, people have been convinced that you don't even really need it because all you need is the New Testament. But you can't understand what's in the Gospels and the letters of the apostles if you don't understand the context of what they already knew. That he was the representation of everything that the Jewish people have ever hoped for embodied in physical flesh. That he is the word of God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. In him all things were created and without him nothing was made that has been made. 
He is before all things. He is all things. It is in him and through him and to him that all things bring glory to the Father. He's not the end of anything. He's the goal. He's the real thing. And it's better because the real thing is always better than the shadow. But the shadow is also patterned after him in the first place because it's one story with many covenants. Order matters and patterns matter. And uh, all of that is my introduction. So, (laughs) Leviticus, which follows the instructions of the tabernacle in the end of Exodus... Leviticus, then, is the instructions on how to use the system that is patterned after what's real in heaven. So in Leviticus 17 and verse 11, it says, For the life of the creature is in the blood, and I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your lives, for it is the blood that makes atonement because of the life. People don't realize that sacrifice is set up as a memorial, not as a system to appease an angry God, but as a memorial for us to remember what God has done. The holidays that we celebrate in Judaism, we call them the Jewish holidays, but really in the scriptures they're called the Feast of the Lord. And the Feast of the Lord were given to us on a calendar so that we had markers on a calendar, one of the rabbis calls it sanctuaries in time, where we have to come back to things over and over again and remember each time what we're supposed to remember. They're memorials to the past of what God did. They're memorials to what God is doing. And they're even memorials to the future of what God will do because he's not done yet. So when we come back to these things and we understand them as uh, memorials so that we don't forget what we're prone to forget, that we need a high priest and we need blood for our sins and we need a God who sets up a system and patterns so we can clearly see how much he loves us, first for the Jewish people and then for anyone from the nations that would come to Jesus. Leviticus, like the rest of the Bible, is a love story between God and the Jewish people because he knows we're going to fail. And he knows that we're not going to keep the covenants that he tells us to keep. And so he keeps them himself. And he makes sure by sending himself, his own son, to do what the whole system was based on for the Jewish people so that through the preaching of the gospel through the Jewish people, Gentiles would come to know the God of Israel who is the only God the God of the creator, the, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and the God of anyone from any nation who calls on his name. So it's a simple pattern, and it's a shadow of the real thing. Um, so I want to show you where sacrifice, it's really seeing Jesus in the Old Testament sacrifice is the same idea of, let's just say, Jesus is the Old Testament sacrifice, And I'll show you why. The first is the lamb was perfect and Jesus is without sin. And this is really important because there was very specific instructions of what kind of animals we were supposed to use and they were supposed to be without blemish and without fault and they had to be perfect. Exodus 12.5 says the animal you choose must be a year old without defect and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. The first Peter chapter one in the New Testament, Peter says it's with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. 
When I was in college, my, uh, one of my professors went to a Christian college, and one of my professors came in and said, Jesus uh, broke the Sabbath. And I was like 18 years old, and there's no chance. <laughs> and he said, why? And I said, because if Jesus breaks the Sabbath, then Jesus is not perfect. If Jesus is not perfect and he sins, then he cannot be a sacrifice for the people, and his blood doesn't matter. Jesus may have broken some of the rules, man-made rules added to the Sabbath, but he did not break the Sabbath because he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He created the Sabbath. He gave us the Sabbath. He told us to keep it as a Jewish people, and he doesn't come to end it. He comes to say, I am the Sabbath. I am everything that I ever said to you. Jesus steps into conversations where rabbis have arguments, and one rabbi says it's this. You've seen Fiddler on the Roof, I would think, right? On the one hand and on the other, the rabbis agree, disagree. We agree to disagree a lot because Judaism's comfortable with disagreement. And rabbis can have opinions that are totally opposite, and they're probably both right, which is not how Christian theology functions. Uh, but Jesus steps into conversations and just says, well, I'll just tell you what I meant when I wrote it and gave it to Moses. <laughs> well, who are you? <laughs> well, I am. No, no, that's not okay. <laughs> so Jesus is a lamb that's, uh, the lamb is perfect and Jesus is without sin. Uh, the second is the lamb was sacrificed, and Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice. Uh, Exodus twelve six says, you take care uh, during Passover, you take care of uh, the lamb until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. And we read, uh, the scripture was read uh, beautifully in Japanese, which was cool. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 says, indeed, every priest stands day by day serving and offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But on the other hand, on the one hand and on the other, when this one offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from then on until his enemies are made his footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those being made holy. Now, it says in verse 11 that sacrifices can't take away, can never take away sin. But Jewish people already understood that. Sacrifice doesn't take away sin. It brings atonement for sin. The problem with the sacrifice is there's a specific sin and a specific sacrifice for that sin. And you have to go to the temple in Jerusalem to bring that sacrifice. And when you bring that sacrifice, um, they put it on the altar and they cut the jugular and it... Sorry, it's graphic on purpose, but it keeps blood spurts until there's no more life in the animal because it's dead and its blood runs out. And so it's effective to cover the sin that it's being sacrificed for, but it can't cover more than that. The difference for Jesus' sacrifice is he's not dead. And his blood is always flowing because he's still alive. And the life of the creature is in its blood. And when John sees the lamb who is slain and the jugular is cut in Revelation, somebody's like, how much blood does that guy have? Forever. Because he's not dead. He's alive. His sacrifice is better 
because there's only one that's needed, and it's the one that all the other sacrifices pointed to in the first place. It's, they were the shadow of the real thing, and the real thing is now in heaven. And with the altar, the lamb that is slain on the altar, somehow he also sits at the right hand of the Father at the same time as the visible image of the invisible God, which is all why, well, he's God. But he is, uh, the lamb was sacrificed, and it's important to understand that Jesus offered himself. People always argue, and people say, um, I'm thinking about one of the books that I have in my mind to write is called The Jews Did Not Kill Christ and Other Frustrations of a Messianic Rabbi. And uh, because people argue, did the Romans kill him? Did the, did the Jewish leaders kill him? And the answer is, it doesn't matter. He knew what he had to do. And he offers himself, not only because he's a sacrifice that is worthy of being a sacrifice, but because he's also the high priest who makes the sacrifice, offers the sacrifice. And it's the third, Jesus is the Old Testament sacrifice because the lamb's blood saved and Jesus' blood saves. Exodus 12, 13 says, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over so that there will be no plague among you to destroy you and strike the land of Egypt. John says in 1 John chapter 4 that the love of God was revealed among us by this, that God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son as an atonement for our sins. It's interesting, when Jesus lifts the cup, which we're going to do communion after the service, when he lifts the cup and he says, this is my new covenant in my blood. Well, the issue is the the new covenant is not inaugurated in that moment. It's not even inaugurated at his death. It's not even inaugurated at his resurrection. It's inaugurated when he brings his blood to the altar in heaven, which is at, I believe, his ascension on the 40th day, that he leaves his disciples and brings his uh, blood to heaven because all the shadows point to the real thing that is in heaven heaven. And every covenant that God makes with his people is new, and every covenant he makes is with the Jewish people, including the new covenant. He's actually quoting Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 30, where it says, behold, days are coming. It's a declaration of the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. That's the Jewish people. Why does it have to be with the Jewish people? Because those are the people that God makes covenants with, and then instructs us to tell the whole world that he also wants to bring you back to himself because he formed you in your mother's womb. Hebrews 9 says, verse 15 says it this way, Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Is there a better covenant? Yeah. Well, the new one's always the better one. Is it because the old covenants, older covenants are bad? No, it's because they point to the real thing in the person of Jesus. He is the whole sacrificial system in one person. He's the sacrifice that's being offered. He's the high priest that offers it. And he is the God who receives it on behalf of his people so that we, the Jewish people, could go do what we were told to do by Jesus, which is tell the nations that he's the only God, the creator of the heavens and the earth.
So the last point, Jesus is the Old Testament sacrifice, is the lamb was shared, and Jesus is shared with everyone. In Exodus 12, verse 4, uh, it says about the Passover lamb, if any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor. Which means, when we made the sacrifice and put the blood on the doorpost, there had to be enough for everyone to eat. And if you couldn't all eat it, then you had to invite people over to eat it with you. And it all had, verse 10 says, that it should remain until morning because sharing isn't about you. It's Mr. Rogers stuff right here. <laughs> sharing is about the other people who need what we have. And it's why Jesus said in what you know as the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and verse 18, he said, Yeshua came to them and spoke to them saying, all authority in heaven and earth. That's uh, New York for authority. Sorry. <laughs> All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, immersing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There's one story with many covenants, and orders, uh, order and patterns matter to God. He set order and patterns for us to see the order, what the order and the pattern were pointing to. And Jesus is not the end of the law. He's not the end of the sacrificial system. He is the sacrificial system. He is the whole thing in one person. He is the embodiment of all of the hopes of the Jewish people in one person who then becomes the hope of the whole world and anyone who calls on his name. So the lamb, the sacrifice, is perfect it's sacrificed, its blood is saved, and it's shared. And in the same sense, Jesus was without sin, offered himself as a sacrifice, his blood saves, and it is for everyone. The book of Hebrews tells us that because of the blood of Jesus, we can now enter boldly before the throne of God. And in our search for boldness and our relationship with Jesus, we have to understand who he is and what he embodies it's funny, even as we are going to do communion in a few minutes, there's a, a, just kind of a funny, but also not funny, issue. Um, we're not allowed to drink blood. Jewish people are not. It's a, it's a commandment that God gives us. It's not something we just made up. God said, don't drink blood. And according to the apostles in Acts 15, Gentiles aren't allowed to drink blood either. So the whole idea that we're actually drinking Jesus' blood, which takes 1,500 years for Martin Luther to come along and go, you know, I think it was a metaphor. <laughs> and Jewish people are like, really? Took you that long, bro? We don't drink blood. There's actually a, another similar commandment, which is we don't eat people. So what is the metaphor of drinking blood and eating his body? It's about the sacrifice. And the sacrificial system, it's what all of it actually points to. Not that we are actually drinking his blood because nobody's allowed to do that. But that when we drink together, we are mindful of who he is and what he's done. Not that he's come to replace anything, but that everything that came before him was actually pointing to him in the first place. I should write that down. That was a good sentence. <laughs> I was thinking about the hymn, and we're, we're going to sing... Uh, my, my hope is built on nothing less 
than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but holy trust in Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, on all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood when all around my soul gives way. He then is all my hope and stay. And when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Let me pray for you. Lord God, we thank you for who you are and who you've called us to be as your people. And we're so grateful for the sacrifice that you made for us and all that points to your sacrifice. And we're grateful that no matter how many times we break covenants, you keep them. And pray, Lord, that you would help us to see you in everything, to see you in difficulties, to see you in times of frustration and hard change, as we've all been going through, and that we would know that all the things we're worried about are sinking sand. And our hope is that you would help us stand on you. In Jesus' name, amen.